Section 17 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 5 The Devil Boat. Lettieri's Galliot was not rigged to the best advantage for sailing, and this was no defect, since it is one of the laws of naval architecture. Besides, as the vessel had fire for its motive power, sails were only accessories. Let us add that a side-wheel steamer is scarcely affected by any sails which may be applied to it. The Galliot was too short, too round, too squat. It had too much beam, too much quarter. Boldness of invention had not been carried so far as to make it light. The Galliot had some of the defects and some of the good qualities of the paunch. She pitched but little, but she rolled a great deal. The paddle-boxes were too high. She had too much beam for her length. The engine was massive and encumbered her, and in order to render the vessel fit for a heavy cargo they had been obliged to heighten the bulwarks out of all proportion, which gave to the galley nearly the same defect as the old seventy-fours, a bastard model, and which ought to be cut down in order to render them fit for fighting or sailing. Being short, she should have turned quickly, the time employed in an evolution being in proportion to the length of vessels. But the weight deprived her of the advantage gained by her shortness. Her midship frame was too large, which slackened her speed, the resistance of the water being in proportion to the greater section submerged and to the square of the speed of the vessel. The stern was vertical, which would not be a fault nowadays, but at that time the invariable custom was to give it a slope of forty-five degrees. All the curves of the hull were harmonious, but not sufficiently long for the obliquity, and above all for the parallelism of the prism of water displaced, which should never be thrown back otherwise than laterally. In heavy weather she shipped too much water, sometimes at the bow, sometimes at the stern, which indicated an error in placing the center of gravity. As the cargo was not where it should have been, owing to the weight of the engine, the center of gravity often shifted behind the mainmast, and then they were obliged to trust to steam and distrust the mainsail, for the effect of the mainsail in that case was to make the vessel fall off instead of keeping her near the wind. The remedy was, when they were very near the wind, to let go the mainsheet. In this way the wind was fixed on the bow by the tack-jib, and the mainsail no longer produced the effect of a stern sail. This maneuver was difficult. The helm was the old-fashioned tiller, not a wheel as at the present day, but with a bar turning on its hinges, fixed in the stern posts, and moved by a horizontal beam passing above the stern frame. Two small boats were suspended from the davits. The vessel had four anchors, the sheet anchor, the second anchor, or working anchor, and two small bower anchors. These four anchors, which were bent by chains, were worked, as occasion demanded, by the great capstan at the stern, or the little capstan at the bow. At that epoch the hydraulic capstan had not yet replaced the intermittent effort of the handspike. 
as the vessel had but two bower anchors, one on the starboard and the other on the port, the vessel could not be moored in a tideway, which placed it rather at a disadvantage in certain winds. However, in such cases it could make shift with the second anchor. The buoys were of the ordinary kind, and so constructed as to bear up the weight of the buoy ropes while remaining afloat. The long boat was of useful dimensions. It was the main dependence of the vessel, and was large enough to raise the sheet anchor. One novelty in this vessel was that it was partly rigged with chains, which deprived the running ropes of none of their freedom of movement, nor the standing rigging of its tension. The masts, though of secondary importance, were well proportioned. The top rigging, drawn taut, looked light. The timbers were solid, but coarse, since steam does not require so much delicacy of wood as canvas. This boat had a speed of two leagues an hour. When lying to, she rowed well. Such as she was, the Thierry's Galliot was a good sea boat, but she lacked sharpness wherewith to cut the water, and one could not say that she worked easily. One felt that in danger, on a reef, or in a water-spout, she would be hard to handle. She creaked like a misshapen thing. As she rolled on the waves, she made a noise like that of a new shoe. This vessel was above all things a carrier, and like all vessels fitted out for commerce rather than for war, was designed exclusively for the stowage of cargo. She accommodated but few passengers. The transportation of cattle rendered stowage difficult and very peculiar. Cattle were then stowed in the hold, which was another complication. At the present time they are carried on the forward deck. The paddle-boxes of the Thierry's devil boat were painted white, the hull, to the water-line, red, and all the rest of the vessel black, in accordance with the ugly fashion of this century. When empty she drew seven feet of water, and when loaded, fourteen. The engine was powerful. The power was one horse for every three tons burden, which is nearly equal to that of a tugboat. The paddles were well placed, a little ahead of the vessel's center of gravity. The engine had a maximum pressure of two atmospheres. It consumed a great deal of coal, though it was a condensing and expanding engine. It had no flywheel, owing to the instability of its point of support, and this was remedied, as at the present day, by a double apparatus which caused two cranks fixed at the extremities of the shaft to alternate, and were so arranged that one was always at right angle or quarter turn, while the other was at the dead center. The whole engine rested on a single cast-iron plate, so that even in the case of serious injury no blow of the waves could deprive it of its equilibrium, and the hull, crushed out of shape, could not put the engine out of order. To render the engine still more solid, the principal connecting rod had been placed near the cylinder, which transferred the center of oscillation from the middle to the end of the walking beam. Since then, oscillating cylinders have been invented which do away with connecting rods, but at that epoch the connecting rod near the cylinder seemed the final word in machinery. The boiler was divided by partitions and provided with a brine pump. 
the paddles were very large, which diminished the loss of power, and the smokestack was very tall, which increased the draft of the furnace. But the size of the wheels exposed them to the waves, and the height of the stack offered resistance to the wind. Wooden floats, iron hooks, cramps, cast-iron hubs, such were the paddle-wheels, well-constructed, and surprising to say, capable of being taken apart. There were always three floats submerged, the speed of the center of the floats only exceeded by one-sixth the speed of the vessel. Therein lay the defect in the wheels. Moreover, the end of the cranks was too long, and the slide-valve distributed the steam in the cylinder with too much friction. At that period this engine seemed and was admirable. This engine had been made in France, at the foundry of Bercy. Mais Le Thierry had devised it himself, to some extent. The mechanic who had built it on his model was dead, so that this engine was unique and it was impossible to replace it. The engineer remained, but the builder was gone. The engine cost forty thousand francs. Le Thierry himself had made the galiot under the great covered ship-shed which stands beside the first tower between St. Pierre-Port and St. Sampson. He had gone to Bremen to buy the timber. On this structure he had exhausted all his knowledge as a ship's carpenter, and his talent was to be recognized in the planking, whose seams were narrow and even, and covered with sarangusti, an Indian mastic, which is better than pitch. The sheathing was well fastened. Letieri smeared the keel with calgal. In order to correct the curve of the hull he had adjusted the jim-boom to the bowsprit, which allowed him to add a flying jib to the jib. On the day when it was launched he said, There, I am afloat. The galliot was, in fact, a success, as the reader has seen. Accidentally or intentionally it was launched on the 14th of July. On that day, Le Thierry, standing on the deck between the two paddle-boxes, gazed intently at the sea and exclaimed, "'Tis thy turn. The Parisians took the Bastille. Now we take thee." Le Thierry's galliot made the trip from Guernsey to St. Malo once a week. She set out on Tuesday morning and returned on Friday evening, the eve of market-day, which is Saturday. It was of much larger tonnage than the largest coasting sloops in all the archipelago, and its capacity being in proportion to its dimensions, a single one of these voyages was equal, for the voyage out and return, to four voyages of an ordinary cutter, hence decided advantages. The reputation of a vessel depends on its stowage, and Le Thierry was a good stevedore. When he could no longer work on the sea himself, he trained a sailor to take his place as a stower of the cargo. At the end of two years the steamer brought in a net income of seven hundred and fifty pounds sterling a year, that is to say eighteen thousand francs. The pound sterling of Guernsey is worth twenty-four francs, that of England twenty-five, and that of Jersey twenty-six. This trifling difference is less trifling than it appears, the banks find a profit in it. End of chapter 5 The Devil Boat